Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing On the 20th Century. How are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. I want to begin our opening segment this week by paying our respects to Cloris Leachman, who passed away this week at the age of 94. Her Broadway credits included South Pacific, As You Like It, and King of Hearts, though you would likely know her from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Last Picture Show, Young Frankenstein, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Phyllis, The Muppet Movie, History of the World Part 1, my Little Pony the Movie, The Facts of Life, Prancer, The Iron Giant, Malcolm in the Middle, Adventure Time, The Croods, Raising Hope, or American Gods. She had 287 film and television credits to her name. I'm sure that you have seen her at least once. We should also take a moment to pay our respects to 96-year-old Cicely Tyson, who also passed away this week. Cicely Tyson's Broadway credits include The Gin Game, The Corn is Green, and a Tony-winning performance in The Trip to Bountiful. Her list of 98 film and television credits includes Sounder, 12 Angry Men, How to Get Away with Murder, Miss Scrooge, Roots, and Fried Green Tomatoes. Now, I do want to make it clear that these fast and loose obituaries, these eulogies that we provide in our opening segments, are not meant to be a true encapsulation of the people that we are discussing. They are much more than their awards and credits, of course. Course. They shared their truths with us, their artistry. They were incredibly brave individuals who contributed to an artistic community. These are people that we are talking about, and we need to take a moment and consider the wide breadth of their experience. So, rest in peace to Cloris Leachman and Cicely Tyson. I do want to correct myself. I made a mistake during our MAME episode. Yes, our MAME episode, I consistently referred to Angela Lansbury's positive movement moves, her workout motivational tape. I referred to that tape as positive moods. I don't know if I had pure moods on the brain. I don't know what was going on with me. I just want to make that correction clear. Let us end our opening segment by saying this. This episode will be released on Patty's 
birthday. Oh my goodness, happy birthday to Patty. I sent her several bouquets of dahlias and foxgloves. Yes, dahlias and foxgloves, as those are her favorite flowers. I made sure to get that right. I reached out to Patty's partner. I was so sneaky. I got the information confirmed. My hope is that her official birthday, we are recording a few days early, of course, I hope her official birthday will be nothing short of spectacular. Thank you for everything you do, Patty. Your support. You are an amazing individual. Much love to your partner. And baby, I cannot believe this struck me recently. The baby will be turning two this year. Oh my goodness. That is truly hard to believe. I want us to now move on to the show facts regarding on the 20th century. You're saying to me, show me the show facts. I'm saying to you, all right, let's do it. On the 20th century was a 1978 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on February 19th, 1978 at the St. James Theatre, and ran for 449 performances. The book was written by Betty Comden and Adolph Green, the music was written by Cy Coleman, and the lyrics were written by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. The musical's roots trace back to Napoleon of Broadway, an unproduced play by Charles B. Millie Holland, which fictionalized his experiences with David Belasco, an infamously eccentric theatrical producer. Napoleon served as the inspiration for the Ben Hecht, Charles MacArthur play, 20th Century, which ran on Broadway for a short time in 1932. To say 20th Century found life after Broadway would be an understatement. Howard Hawks directed a 1934 film version that starred John Barrymore and Carol Lombard. In 1939, Orson Welles led a radio adaptation alongside Sam Levine and Alyssa Landy. The play was adapted for TV in 1949, 1953, and 19. 1956 and has been revived on Broadway twice, once in 1950 with Jose Ferrer and Gloria Swanson, and again in 2004 with Alec Baldwin and Anne Heche. A bit of a downgrade there. <laughs> the musical, for its part, was revived on Broadway in 2015 with Kristen Chenoweth and Peter Gallagher. Oh, you better believe we'll be talking about the 2015 revival. The director of the original Broadway production of On the 20th Century, Harold Hal Prince. Hello, Hal. The musical director, Paul Gemignani. I recognize your name, Paul Gemignani. The choreographer, well, we have a musical staging by credit. That is Larry Fuller. Scenic design, Robin Wagner. Lighting design, Ken Billington. Sound design, Robin Wagner. Costume design, Florence Klotz. The original Broadway cast included Imogene Coca, yes, the Imogene Coca, thank you very much. John Cullum, Madeline Kahn, yes, the Madeline Kahn, thank you very much. George Lee Andrews, Tom Batten, Willie Burke, Maris Clement, George Coe, Dean Dittman, David Horwitz, Judy Kay. Actually, Judy Kay served as Madeline Kahn's understudy before officially moving into Madeline Kahn's lead role. We will mention Judy Kay again when talking about our Tony award ceremony performances. But let us round out this original Broadway cast. We have Kevin Klein. Yes, the Kevin Klein. Thank you very much. We have Carol Luganbeel, Sal Mistretta, Stanley Simmons, and Rufus Smith. What about Tony Nods? Well, on the 20th century, won the Tony Award for Best Book of a Musical, Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Best Original Score, Betty Comden, Adolph Green, and Cy Coleman. Best Actor in a Musical, John Cullum. Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Kevin Klein, and Betty 
Best Scenic Design, Robin Wagner. The production was additionally nominated for Best Musical, of course, but also Best Actress in a Musical, Madeline Kahn, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Imogene Coca, and Best Direction of a Musical, Hal Prince. So nine nominations in total, five Tony Awards at the end of the evening. Let's talk about that plot. Welcome to Chicago in the early 1930s. The French Girl, a mediocre Joan of Arc melodrama, suddenly closes when the only member of the audience walks out. Womp womp. The cast turns on press agent Owen O'Malley and business manager Oliver Webb, demanding to see the theatrical impresario who has failed them, Mr. Oscar Jaffe. Owen and Oliver find Jaffe hiding from the mob in a suit of armor. His instructions to the men are clear. Book Drawing Room A on the 20th Century, a luxury locomotive that will take them from Chicago to New York City in just 16 hours. Do not fail me, boys. Do not fail me. Smash cut. Chicago's LaSalle Station. The 20th Century is about to embark in grand fashion, much like the SS American and Anything Goes as a point of comparison. Owen and Oliver discover Drawing Room A has already been reserved for a Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh, no! In actuality, the Smiths are Congressman Grover Lockwood and his latest mistress, Anita. Owen and Oliver threaten to blackmail Lockwood, and he departs with Anita close behind. Shortly after their departure, Owen and Oliver spy Jaffe clinging to the side of the 20th century, dear God in heaven. Jaffe slides into the train through a window, proclaiming he will rise again in the face of the French girl's stunning failure. His plan? Convince the illustrious Lily Garland to star in his next play despite their troubled past. Flashback. Jaffe, Oliver, Owen, and their stage manager, Max Jacobs, are holding auditions for a new production. The renowned Emilda Thornton is up for the part of Veronique LaRue, a petite temptress who unwittingly starts the Franco-Prussian War by refusing to smile for Prince Otto von Bismarck. You know how you do. Emilda performs a questionable ballad known as the Indian Maiden's Lament before getting into a fight with her pianist, the homely Mildred Plotka. Emilda fires Mildred, but Jaffe is struck by the young woman's natural talent. He gives her a new name, Lily Garland, and vows to transform her into an icon. Back to present day, the conductor of the 20th century arrives at drawing room A with a script he has written about life on a train. The title of the script, Life on a Train! Jaffe dismisses the conductor, who warns of a religious nut hiding on the train in plain sight. Another passenger, Mrs. Letitia Primrose, seems unaffected by this news. In Englewood, Lily Garland boards the 20th century alongside her co-star and all-around boy toy Bruce Granite. The fanfare surrounding her appearance is nothing short of astonishing. Lily settles into drawing room B and says goodbye to Bruce as he is only seeing her off. She complains of loneliness to Agnes, her pessimistic maid, but when Bruce reappears moments after departure, surprise, she explodes like a bomb. Their romance is tempestuous at best. Oliver and Owen arrive at drawing room B to greet Lily, who is overjoyed to see them, but when Jaffe's name is invoked, she turns to stone. She will never work with Oscar Jaffe again. Never! 
Bruce is suspicious. He has heard all about Lily's various romantic entanglements, but she never mentioned an Oscar Jaffe. Who is this guy? What gives? Lily scoffs, insisting the relationship was purely professional. Despite this promise, Lily finds herself daydreaming about Jaffe, just as Jaffe finds himself daydreaming about Lily. The passengers of the 20th century are in a state of outrage. Why has no one caught the religious nut who has been slapping stickers on their belongings? Ah, stickers. Every sticker bears the same message. Quote, repent for the time is at hand. Quote, the conductor assures everyone the nut will be identified and captured in due time. Shut up already. The crowd disperses and Mrs. Letitia Primrose is left alone. She sings about the depravity of the world and how she intends to cleanse it with radical action. This seemingly harmless old woman is the religious nut. Jaffe finds himself inspired by one of Letitia's stickers. Why not produce a play for Lily that is all about Mary Magdalene? A genius idea, if ever there was one. He sets Oliver and Owen to work, telling them to produce a contract and a press release as quickly as possible. While conversing with Oliver and Owen, Letitia reveals she is the founder and president of Primrose Restore Pills, one of the most profitable companies in the country. Letitia has so much money she hardly knows what to do with it. Owen and Oliver are intrigued, to say the least. Jaffe confronts Lily in drawing room B, where Bruce is disgusted to learn of their romantic history. What? He storms out, leaving Jaffe and Lily to sort through their baggage. Lily asserts that nothing could be better about her life. She has fame, fortune, a loyal beau, and an Academy Award for Christ sake. What's more, why would she ever align herself with Jaffe when Max Jacobs is her producer now? Jaffe nearly pukes. His former stage manager working with the star he created? The very idea. Granted, Max has produced a phenomenal streak of hit plays, whereas everything Jaffe touches turns to mud, but Max is a dork. Owen and Oliver fill Jaffe in on everything they know about Letitia. It's clear she has the dough to bankroll their Mary Magdalene opus, which which is nothing short of a miracle. Congressman Lockwood delivers a script he has written about serving on the U.S. Hog Market Committee. The title of the script, Life on the Hog Market Committee. Jaffe dismisses the congressman and convinces Letitia to go into business with him. Act 2. Letitia writes a check for $200,000. Jaffe is approached by a Dr. Johnson, who has written a script about life in a metropolitan hospital. The title of the script, Life in a Metropolitan Hospital. Jaffe dismisses the doctor. He has other priorities right now. Jaffe worms his way into drawing room B and begins to pitch the Mary Magdalene play. He and Lily are soon swept up in a passionate round of role play, with Lily as Mary and Jaffe as the Emperor of Rome. Lily snaps herself out of the fantasy. How can she possibly trust Jaffe? The $200,000 check could be a fake. Letitia Primrose may not even be real. Jaffe squashes these concerns by introducing Lily to his benefactor. Bruce returns to make amends with Lily and is mortified to find her seconds away from signing Jaffe's contract. When she hesitates, Jaffe swoops in to sweeten the deal. If Lily agrees to do the Mary Magdalene play, 
for a year, he will give her the movie rights for free. The conductor arrives to inform everyone that A, the 20th century will soon be pulling into Cleveland, and B, Letitia's associates will be boarding to meet her. Letitia leaves the drawing room in a flash. Lily instructs Owen to update the terms of the contract and asks to be left alone while she mulls everything over. Letitia's associates are, as it turns out, officers from a mental institution who have been sent to retrieve her. Owen, Oliver, Lily, and Jaffe are horrified. Letitia is the religious nut? This is a disaster. Smash cut. Letitia is shown straddling the front of the 20th century as if she were the figurehead on a ship, as if she were a hood ornament. Max Jacobs boards the train and presents Lily with a brand new high-profile play. Jaffe is predictably filled with jealousy, dread, and fury. Lily skims through Max's play and tries to picture herself in the glamorous lead role of Babette. It seems like a great opportunity, though she can't help but wonder what it would be like to play Mary Magdalene. The two parts eventually collide within her imagination. Babette, Mary Magdalene, Babette, Magdalene, Mary, Babette. Left in a giddy haze, Lily informs Max she will star in his play. Oliver and Owen are drinking at the bar when Jaffe declares he is going to shoot and, with any luck, kill himself. Oliver and Owen are unfazed, believing their employer will never follow through, but that assumption is promptly dispelled with the sound of a gunshot. Bang! Jaffe staggers back to the bar, a hand clutched to his chest. Ah! Letitia is caught holding the gun, though she is quick to plead her innocence. She was only trying to wrestle the gun away from Jaffe when it went off. Yeah, that's the ticket. Dr. Johnson examines Jaffe and writes off his injury as nothing to write home about. Tis but a flesh wound. This does not sit well with Jaffe, who promises to produce life in a metropolitan hospital if the doctor agrees to play up his condition. But for whom? Why, for Lily, of course, she is positively distraught at the sight of Jaffe and agrees to sign his contract as a final act of love. Max tries to intervene, but it is too late. Jaffe has won! Lily is his once more! Ah-ha-ha-ha! ha ha But not so fast, Jaffe. Take a closer look at the dotted line on that contract. The signature reads, Peter Rabbit! Peter Rabbit? What?! Lily knew Jaffe was faking all along. They insult each other in a riotous display, only to fall into each other's arms. Who are they kidding? They love each other. The end. Curtain down. For the purposes of this week's episode, I watched the 1934 film, 20th Century. That was my starting point, all right? Lily and Jaffe's romantic fallout, which is often referenced by the musical, but never fully explained, is relayed in great detail by the 1934 Howard Hawks film. We don't even see the 20th century until the 40-minute mark, and by the time it appears, we completely understand why the relationship is not working. In short, Jaffe is an emotionally abusive monster who humiliates and spies on Lily until she is inspired to run for the hills. Again, this is within the context of the film. Notably, the ending of the film does not involve Lily winning out over Jaffe, with a Peter Rabbit sleight of hand. She completely falls for his ham-fisted deathbed routine, signs the contract in good faith, and is mortified to find herself under his 
control once more. Their final screaming match does not end with a kiss, and they are, in my opinion, not in love as we fade to black. They hate each other, and they will never escape each other. Is this a better finale than the happy one offered by the musical? I suppose that depends on how you take your comedy. Pitch black or with a dash of cream and sugar? Me, I'm a cream and sugar guy. If Jaffe and Lily are going to rail at each other for nearly two hours, I need to know they actually care for one another, and the musical offers that comfort. The idea that these two will be snarling and snapping like jackals for the rest of their lives is depressing. The film also includes some, uh, shall we say, moldy ethnic stereotypes. They are so moldy I can barely make heads or tails of their roots. If the film is any indication, 20th Century is one of those comedies that's more fun to perform than watch. If anything else, audiences deserve a break from all of the shouting. The movie is nearly two hours of shouting, and what better way to break that up than with song and dance? I understand why it would work as a stage musical. I do, I do. After watching the original film, I moved on to the book by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. I do have a couple of script highlights for you. Scene one, stage directions. This is on the first page of the script. Quote, on stage we see part of a cathedral, a bishop, and a few soldiers in armor. Also, a stake with piled up faggots. Quote, and then, on the same page, just slightly further down, we have, quote, the executioner lifts the torch toward the faggots. Quote, all right already, we get it. I don't mean to be a, a persnickety puss about this, but it's 1978. We know what the connotation is when it comes to that word. Oh, I'm just trying to be historically accurate. Who said that? Betty, Adolf, come here. No, 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 no. Holy hell. Moving on, I have a quote here from Jaffe. I'm just going to deliver this dialogue as if I were still an actor, so bear with me. Here's a quote from Jaffe. Oh, okay, so this is... <laughs> I realize why I wrote this down. This is another bit of questionable material that I assume is no longer in the book, but Jaffe says to Owen and Oliver, Hanglewood! Oh, she's getting on here. Lily Garland eating at my heart like a gray rat. Oh, Owen, when I love a woman, I'm an oriental. It never dies. Quote, I don't even know what the fuck that means. What else do we have here? Oh, we have this wonderful exchange, which I do genuinely enjoy. This is not me being a persnickety puss. This is an exchange between Lily and Jaffe. Lily begins, oh, this is when they're role-playing through the plot of their hypothetical Mary Magdalene play. Lily says, Magdalene, the counterpart of the modern woman, fatal beauty, enormous intelligence. She can find no outlet in that corrupt time. And by implication, we mean today, She's considered chattel, goods, men's plaything. Her sinning is a form of revenge to defy a society she cannot change. And she goes down, down, down. And Jaffe continues by saying, Into the depths I see a depraved banquet scene. You covered completely in emeralds from head to toe and nothing else. Ah, but the finish, the finish. You there in rags, a pathetic figure selling olives in the marketplace to which lily responds olives olives the stage directions indicate that she is stooped like a lowly beggar olives olives and then the only other highlight I have from this here script, Jaffe says, oh, this is after he has been shot. Jaffe says, the final irony killed by a maniac. And Owen says in response, Oscar, anything I can do? A priest? A dish of ice cream? I love that. 
A priest? A dish of ice cream? Who doesn't love that? Okay, that's all I have to say about the copy of the script I read. I listened to the 1978 original Broadway cast album, and then I sat down with the 1978 Tony Awards performance of On the 20th Century, the title number. This performance features Judy Kay in the role of Lily Garland, as she had already transitioned from understudy to replacement. I told you we'd be talking about Judy Kay again. Kay was most recently seen on Broadway as the Dowager Empress in Anastasia, and is said to appear as Queen Elizabeth in Diana. Talk about a vibe. I'm a big fan of how the title number has been staged for the Schubert Theater. This is a jumbo-sized musical with a lot of moving parts, but the stage picture remains dynamic and crisp due to carefully considered organization. Everything comes down to clean lines and shapes. The train runs parallel to the row of tap-dancing porters, for example, the ensemble moves like a school of fish, wholly unified while demonstrating individual flair. A flitting gesture here, a bend at the waist there. When you have these lines and shapes acting as constants, it makes it easier for audiences to track standalone characters or those moving as pairs. You see who's coming, who's going, and no one is ever lost. This is first-rate stage work on the part of Larry Fuller and Hal Prince, and I tip my hat to them. Kevin Klein is absolutely in attendance for this performance, BTW. He's playing Bruce Granite, though I have to wonder what he could have done with the role of Jaffe. I'm thinking he would have bitten into it like it was a ham sandwich. I then sat down with the 2015 Broadway Revival cast album, and I watched the 2015 Tony Awards performance of On the 20th Century slash I've Got It All slash Babette. The highlight of the 2015 performance is the tap routine presented by Rick Faugno, Richard Riaz, Yoder, Philip Adamore, and Drew King. And as always, I do apologize for pronouncing, mispronouncing, I should say, any first or last names. This routine is quite gay and spectacular, and their precision is laudable. The same can also be said of Keith Davis, Quitman, Flood III, Ray Stevens, and Joseph Weiss, who appeared in the same Porter roles back in 1978. Unlike their predecessors, the cast of the 2015 revival seems somewhat adrift, as if they can barely keep up with the pace of the medley that has been assembled for them. I will say it again, choosing to present a highlight reel of your show over a self-contained number is almost always a mistake. Why would you work so hard to craft individual sequences only to cut them up and splice them together a la Dr. Frankenstein? It lives, yes, but at what cost? Pick one number. P.S. Has anyone thought of writing a fun little story about Skimbleshanks the Railway Cat taking a job on the 20th century? I'm not going to, but someone should. Feel free to send that story to me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I'm waiting. I do not have any earth-shattering takeaways from this week's score, so for the most part, we will be examining on the 20th century on a micro scale, focusing on the little pleasures and what is life if nothing but a marathon of minor delights. Search me. Let us begin. Traitors. Look at the two of you. Judas Iscariot and, and his sister Sue. You think I'm finished? They all think I'm finished. But every time they think I'm through, I rise again, full size again. And give those doubting Thomases a walloping surprise again. 
them, I sneer at them, I cheer at them, I thumb my nose and bite my thumb and bear my royal rear at them with my back up against the wall, with the walls yapping at my heels, with the noose tightening round my neck. That's the time I know how really living feels With the wall up against my back With the water rising to my chin Chained and bound tight inside a sack That's the plight that I'm delighted in For I have posed like a lad's genie did I do escape tricks Better than Houdini did In the black of my cul-de-sac Do I crack and fall? No! I attack With my back up against the wall It won't surprise anyone to learn I am interested in playing Oscar Jaffe. If you are agog in the face of this news, I'm going to assume you are new to the podcast. Welcome. But yeah, of course I want to play Oscar Jaffe. I want to say things like, get away from me, you gray rat, and I close the iron door on you. And traitors, look at the two of you, Judas Iscariot and his sister, Sue. These are juicy, stupid lines. No one would be able to tame me. I would be positively unhinged, etc., etc. John Cullum's vocals on the OBC album brought to mind those of Brian Stokes Mitchell, who would have been an excellent Oscar Jaffe at one time. He played Fred Graham in the 99 revival of Kiss Me Kate, as we know, so it stands to reason that Jaffe would have been up his alley. While we're on the subject of actors channeling other actors, Peter Gallagher sounds a lot like Tim Curry on the 2015 cast album. And you know who would have been an astounding Oscar Jaffe? Tim Curry! I should have been a casting director, I tell ya. I could have been the Doogie Hauser of casting directors. This time it goes up a fourth. What? Come back. Thank you. Come back. Come back. Come back. Come back. Come back. Can you not hear me? Come back. You were singing it wrong. Oh, I could sing it right if you could play just one right note. Mm, you couldn't sing this right if Paderewski was playing. Oh! We needed to hear the interplay between Paula Legette Chase as Imelda Thornton and Kristen Chenoweth as Mildred Plotka for two reasons. Reason number one, it tickles me to no end. Reason number two, the accent Chenoweth is employing would only be acceptable in a musical comedy. I don't buy it for a second. She sounds like she's selling hot dogs on the street in an episode of I Get That A Lot. 
and yet I have no notes. At this point, we need to let Chenoweth do whatever she wants. You don't put the tiger in a cage. The tiger, she must be free, must run free. is an A-plus goofball who sets an incredible baseline when it comes to Veronique. But I chose to lift audio from the 2015 album because Chenoweth is quite simply blowing her out of the water. I made myself all too clear during our Steel Pier episode. If Chenoweth is piercing the sound barrier with her white, hot, operatic vocals, I want a front row seat. Actually, Hold on, we do need to hear Khan's take on the material. Can we get that right here? She closed her door, she stopped the wall, she won't say yes, won't lift the dress, she said the tongue, she don't lie down. She turns the tide with fiery blood. Vive la Star Trek, what was I going to do, not let Khan have her day? In case you're scratching your head and wondering why the name Madeline Khan rings a bell, that could happen. There might be people out there who are not familiar with Ms. Khan. Here's a quick rundown of her film credits. What's Up Doc? Paper Moon, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Clue, An American Tale, My Little Pony the Movie, Hello, Cloris Leachman, History of the World Part 1, Hello, Cloris Leachman, and A Bug's Life. She played Gypsy, the Moth, Hello! Madeline Kahn's Broadway credits include 2 by 2 Boom Boom Room, and The Sisters, Rosenweig. She did not play a moth on Broadway, I am sorry to say. September, June, November, Come back to him, he might do something drastic. Let it 
emotional states of Madeline Kahn. You love to see it. Kahn? I adore the slow turning of the screw on that initial series of nevers. Never. Never? Never! The song we are currently examining, Never, ends with Lily being reduced to incoherent gibbering, a string of mad, murderous woodpecker bleats, and as fans of Clue can attest, no one delivers madness like Miss Madeline Kahn. Yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flamed, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths. On the 20th century, on the 20th century, as in flight across the night, America, the beautiful rolls by. All those windows, all those people, all those lives. Across the land, in every home, in humble hut or pleasure dome. I know there's dirty doings going on. The man who seeks the fancy whore the boy who locks the bathroom door. Ah, yes, I know, dirty doings going on. And I must spread the word and save you from your fate. You must mend your ways before it's too late. Repent, repent, repent. Stop those dirty little doings, every man and boy and wife. Repent, repent, repent. Stop those wicked little wooings that are screwing up your life. Walk the narrow path, my friends, and keep your thinking pure. Try to lift your minds, my friends, a notch above the sewer. The terrible truth of the matter is that the 20th century score is forgettable. Pleasant, yes, yet every song glances across the mind like an errant breeze. They have about as much impact as a swift kick to the Hoover Dam. Repent is an especially tough nut to crack, and as much as I admire Imogene Coca, her efforts to wring laughter out of this material prove fruitless. Mary Louise Wilson puts even more muscle behind Comden and Green's lyrics, this is for the purpose of the 2015 album, and that does result in a high payout, but I'm a super fan of Mary Louise Wilson at this point, so you have to take my bias into consideration. She was a ray of light as Big Edie in Grey Gardens, and I cannot wait to hear her as Fraulein Schneider in the 98 revival of Cabaret. But back to Repent. I'm not crazy, right? This isn't a funny song. The boy who locks the bathroom door is the only line that stuck with me. An evocative line, but funny? No! In case you're 
are scratching your head and wondering why the name Imogene Coca rings a bell, she played Aunt Edna in National Lampoon's Vacation, as well as Woman Under Hairdryer in the 1963 TV film Promises, Promises, no relation to the David Bacharach musical. That's Promises, Five Dots, Promises, dot, 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 promises, exclamation point. What a title. Coca's Broadway credits include Garrick Gaieties of 1930, Shoot the Works from 1931, Flying Colors from 1932, Fools Rush In from 1934, and All in Fun in 1940. Hello? Another stale cheap dolly from cheap, cheap dolly. My life is simply great. My silverware is gold. Through my Bel Air estate, champagne's a flowing river. Look at my Rolls Royce. Poor Lily, you've gone stale. The movie public's choice. That's not the holy grail. All the biggest names in town are begging to be asked to dinner. Give them all a year or so, they'll drop you for the latest weather. Did it by myself. Keep your taste. Got there by myself. Landed on the show. Never needed Lily, you are through. You're a loser. Stop your trying, I'm not buying. Tragic story, lost your glory. Some spend galley in an alley. Shop girls ate you, farm hands rape you. I've got it. You've lost it. 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 You've lost it. on the back of one's neck tends to stand up in the face of the following lyrics. Quote, Your reputation soiled. A billion shop girls ape you. Nightly nationwide, a billion farmhands rape you. Quote, This joke, question mark, is in keeping with the film's miserably sour tone, but I assumed the 2015 revival of the musical would have struck it from the record. Nope, a billion farmhands rape you is right there, right where it's always been and will seemingly remain forevermore. Unless we get rid of it, that is. Let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. Funny thing about rape, it's not funny. Well, it's not like Jaffe is being literal. He's just saying, I know what he's saying. Shush, you shush, shush. Oh, Lily, what a part. Not just a part. An anthology of womankind. I don't want to hear it. What's the part? Happens to be the greatest woman of all time. Just her memory has kept the whole world weeping for centuries. The Magdalene. The Magdalene? Mary Magdalene? Lily, I can see you. Picture it, the wickedest, most beautiful woman of her age, running the gamut from gutter to glory, ending up in tears at the foot of the cross. <laughs> I plan to have Judas strangle himself with her hair. No, no, no. The Roman centurion has converted. He gives me his sword. Judas, in a shriek of agony, runs into my arms and impales himself with it. Oh, Lily, that's an inspiration. Go on, go on. Oh, what a movie this would make. Later. Think theater, Lily, theater. Yes, yes. Magdalene, fatal beauty, enormous intelligence. Ah, she's considered chattel, goods, man's plaything. She can find no outlet in that corrupt time, and by implication, we mean today. 
Her sinning is a form of revenge to defy a society that she cannot change. And she goes down, down, down. Into the depths, I see a depraved banquet scene. You there covered completely in emeralds from head to toe and nothing else. Ah, <gasps> oh, but the finished lily. You there in rags, a pathetic little figure, <laughs> selling olives in the marketplace. Olives, 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 olives. I do appreciate a revival album that goes out of its way to include excerpts from the book, and this track, an anthology of womanhood, captures one of my favorite moments. You heard my recitation earlier, of course, but no one says olives, olives, like old Christian Chenoweth. That reading was in my head the moment my eyes set upon the line, and Chenoweth follows through in glorious fashion. Olives? Olives. I should have never chosen to pit Madeline Kahn and Christian Chenoweth against each other, or, for that matter, Imogene Coca against Mary Louise Wilson. That was a mistake on my part, and for that, I apologize. We need not discuss our musical theater icons as if they were racehorses. Let us do away with the playing field and hear two clips back-to-back. First, Madeline Kahn performing Babette, then Christian Chenoweth performing Babette. I can't choose between them, and no one should ever ask me to do so. Play it! Max, I love your play. Max, I'll do this play. stretch of the number in which Lily struts and honks like a delirious goose is dopey and dumb in all the right ways. There is a lot of music packed into this score too much, I would argue, but none of it is catchier or more amusing than that senseless stream of blather. That's all, folks. Oh, maybe that's why I like it. <laughs> you got me, Porky. Oh, boys, can you see it? Oh, God. I can see a lonely shuffling figure haunting Schubert Alley. It's crazy Oscar, hear them cry. Ah, get off us, O'Malley. Oh, I meant no harm. Please help me up. Where's my pencils? Where's my cup? Oh, thank you, lad. No, I'll move along. Pencils, pencils. Who'll buy my pencils? 
Peter Gallagher is quite good in the role of Jaffe, but man alive, he is evoking other more interesting actors left and right. One minute he sounds like Tim Curry, the next he has me longing for Nathan Lane. Jaffe's monologue about Schubert Alley is in the same spirit as the Fields of Alfalfa speech Max delivers in The Producers. I see a weathered old farmhouse with a white picket fence. I'm running through fields of alfalfa with my collie, Rex. And Rex, stop it. And once I made that connection, all I wanted was to see Lane tackle 20th century. Jaffe and Max even have the same I Want song. Rise Again, the King of Broadway, same song. Where's my pencils? Where's my cup? Now that's a line I can appreciate. Where's my pencils? Ooh, that's a straight shot of serotonin, brother. Is anyone else hearing a pinch of alms, alms for a miserable woman in pencils, pencils, who will buy my pencils? Pencils, pencils, who'll buy my pencils? Sweeney Todd premiered just one year after Century, so it would appear a mysterious something was in the air. You love that commentary? You love that analysis? Something was in the air, huh? Listen, people, 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 there comes a time in every musical theater podcast when you simply have to sit back, kick up your heels, and listen to Kristen Chenoweth make sounds. I have no critical analysis to offer, no colorful honors to hand out. There is only Peter Gallagher screaming, Peter Rabbit? There is only Christian Chenoweth saying, whoop whoop. Let's hear it several times in a row. Let me in there. I'm Max Jacobs. You're too late, Max Jacobs. What? <gasps> you worm. Forgive me, Lily. I had to do it to save you. You've lost your perspective. You haven't had the sense to know what's good for you. I had the sense to know a bad actor when I see one. Look at the signature. Peter Rabbit? Whoop, whoop. You double-crossing floozy. You haven't had the sense to know what's good for you. I had the sense to know a bad actor when I see one. Look at the signature. Peter Rabbit? Whoop, whoop. You double-crossing floozy. Look at the signature. Peter Rabbit? Whoop, whoop. You double-crossing floozy. Peter Rabbit? Whoop, whoop. You double-crossing floozy. Peter Rabbit? It's the little things I told you from the start. This is from the 2015 track, I Had to Do It to Save Her, for those who may be taking notes. <laughs> Nerds! That's all I have to say when it comes to the score for On the 20th Century. We do have two brand new patrons as of this week. We have a new $3 a month patron, Katie, and a new $10 a month patron, Sydney. I have yet to confirm their musical shoutouts at this point, and so we're going to put that off for the very near future. We will figure that out. I am confident. I am confident. For now, we are going to hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Oh, hello, darling. Oh, my goodness. Look at you. You haven't changed a whit. You still look, oh, the same. You look the same. Isn't that... 
coming. <laughs> what do you mean you don't recognize me? Oh, my dear darling sister, we went to boarding school together. Hello, it's me, Vera Charles. Perhaps you've seen me plastered about all of New York City. Oh, don't read into that. Don't read into that. <laughs> you really haven't grown into yourself at all. It's quite disappointing and amusing. Please don't go anywhere. I'm squeezing your wrists. Come here. I have something to tell you. I've made an astonishing discovery, and you are the first person I've encountered. Here it is. Are you listening? Shush, quiet. The man in the moon is a lady. She loves to drink five, six, seven, eight coffee <laughs> while dining on moon cheese and conversing with little green women. <laughs> <laughs> you have not changed a whit! How is that possible? <laughs> you are so hilarious to me! Look, look, five, six, seven, eight coffee, count your coins because you can count on it. You look, you don't look very wealthy, if I may just say so myself. Me, I have a large hat with a feather in it. You can tell I have money. I'm an operetta star! Count your coins, count on five, six, seven, eight coffee. It's, it's going to send you to the moon! <laughs> Ooh, here's some free passes. Free passes for everyone! I'm throwing them up into the air and they're landing on the street. No one's picking them up. My God, what is the world coming to? Where are you going? I'm not done with your wrists. Final thoughts regarding on the 20th century. On the 20th century is a-okay with me. It is a-o-fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. I mean, I'm happy. Listen to me, I'm happy. Here is Century's central issue. The comedy is more reliant on the volume applied to the text than the quality of the text itself. I should talk. <laughs> I, I just now realize that my little critique could be reflected right back at me. I do tend to rely on volume. You can't improve a joke that isn't solid on paper by shouting it to the rafters, and you won't do yourself any good by repeating it. We did not get into this, but the number She's a Nut, which is nearly four minutes long, involves little more than assorted characters describing Letitia as a nut over and over and over again. She's a nut, she's a nut, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. All right, enough already. I can only hear so much of that before I think about getting a haircut. Do I need a haircut? It's been six weeks. It's getting long. Now, in 1978, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was a show we have discussed in the past. That is Ain't Misbehavin', and the additional nominees that year were Dancing and Runaways. At this point, I do believe Ain't Misbehavin' deserves to keep its Tony Award for Best Musical musical, and so we shall move on to our ranking. Ah ha ha, our ranking, baby. We are going to rank on the 20th century against all of the other musicals we have talked about here on the podcast. As always, you can see our full ranking by following us on Twitter, at MusicalManPod. Go to our like section. The first tweet you find there will link you to a Google Sheet. Go to the second tab. That is where our ranking is, alright? Okay, so on the 20th century, I have placed that between, don't bother me, I can't cope. That is at number 44, 
and Memphis at number 46, which means on the 20th century, you have the number 45 slot. It's true. I've also made one change to our ranking. I have moved once on this island to number 42 between No Strings at number 41 and The Phantom of the Opera at number 43. All right, all right. I have two pieces of show-related ephemera for you this week. First up, a section of the 1939 Campbell Playhouse presentation of 20th Century. This is the Orson Welles radio play, but we are not actually going to hear any of the play itself. I want to play a Campbell vegetable soup ad from the very beginning of the presentation. I find it to be funny because the announcer keeps saying vegetable. Vegetable, he keeps saying over and over again. Let's hear that. Tonight I want to talk to you about Campbell's vegetable soup. And if there's any one soup by which to judge the fine, home-like way that all Campbell soups are made, this is it. Because vegetable soup has always been a family standby, and the soup most often made at home. If you still make your own vegetable soup now and again, won't you please do this? Serve Campbell's vegetable soup next time so that you and your family can compare it with your own. See if its appetizing look, its good flavor, and its satisfying substance don't fully measure up to the best you ever ladled from your own home soup kettle. I want you to do this because Campbell's chefs make vegetable soup the good home way just as you would do. They simmer selected beef until they have a rich, invigorating stock. But what perhaps you wouldn't do is use 50 15, yes, 15 different garden vegetables. Campbell's do. And you can tell by looking at it how substantial and hearty and nourishing a 15 vegetable soup can be. Every delicious spoonful proves it over and over again. So I urge you to set a plate of Campbell's vegetable soup before hungry children or grown-ups for lunch or supper tomorrow. That's the real test of how good it is. And now 20th Century, starring Orson Welles with Alyssa Landy and Sam Levine. Oh, what fun. And our second piece of ephemera is an excerpt from the 1992 Sondheim A Celebration at Carnegie Hall concert. This is Madeline Kahn performing Not Getting Married Today from Company. Ah, there's always time for company. Let's hear that now. Honey, I can't find my cufflinks. They're on the dresser, right next to my suicide note. Listen, everybody, look, I don't know what you're waiting for. A wedding? What's a wedding? It's a prehistoric ritual where everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I've ever heard, and which is followed by a honeymoon where suddenly he'll realize he's saddled with a nut and want to kill me, which he should. Thanks a bunch, but I'm not getting married. So go have lunch, because I'm not getting married. You've been grand, but I'm not getting married. And don't just stand there, I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. Go, can't you go? Why is nobody listening? Goodbye, go and cry. If you're quick for a kick, you could pick up a christening. But please, on my knees, there's a human life at stake. Listen, everybody, I'm afraid you didn't hear. Do you want to see a crazy lady fall apart in front of you? It isn't only Paul who may be ruining his life. You know, all the fuzzy losing our identities. I telephoned my analyst about it, and he said to see you Monday. But by Monday, I'll be floating in the husband with the other garbage. I'm not well, so I'm not getting married. You've been swell, but I'm not getting married. Thank you all, but I'm not getting married. Clear the hall, because I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, Rosie Toto's Half Mile High Club. Everyone ready? Then away we go!
I see. We have landed in the year 1963. This was a nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 257 performances, and there is a connection to a recent subject. This show can be closely connected to MAME. Do you know what this show is? Maybe not, maybe yes, maybe you do, maybe you don't. It's Little Me. Little Me is going to be the subject of our next episode, all right? All right. Do me a favor, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. You can give one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you give one dollar a month, you get Monday early access to all of these main feed episodes. You also get a verbal shout-out each and every week. So thank you very much for donating at least $1 a month. Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get access to a series of bonus episodes covering the 73rd Annual Tony Award the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage musical Emma, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, original cast album Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. You also get season one, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, and you get access to our ongoing series, M3, The Movie Musical Man. This is a show for which... We watch and discuss trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. We just dropped our latest episode, which was the R&R trilogy, the rock and roll trilogy, rock and roll movie musicals. Our theme for February, the February episode will drop on the 24th. That theme is the Apocryphal Bio Trilogy. These are musical biopics. We're going to be watching Star with Julie Andrews, The Greatest Showman with Hugh Jackman, and we're going to be watching Rocket Man rounding us out Rocket Man with Taron Egerton. Ooh la la. But let's say you donate $3 a month. Well, in that case, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You get season one, ten episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, our high school musical podcast, and a special one-off episode all about season one of Julie and the Phantoms. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You get to tell me what we are going to discuss. It's true. You get All I Ask of You Seasons 1 and 2. That's 24 episodes of an advice show hosted by The Phantom of the Opera. It's fantastic. You get access to our Broadway and Chicago review series and Shout About It Volumes 1 and 2. Those are collections of 5678 coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 50 episodes of the podcast. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus The Snub Club Season 1, 12 episodes, a special series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were snubbed when it comes to the Tony Award for Best Musical. They were snubbed. They were not nominated. And starting in April of this year, we're going to have a brand new $10 a month series, Turn It Off, a bi-weekly show dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. You figured it out, baby. If you are listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write up a five-star review. We want 
65 star reviews. We currently have 36. When we get to 65 star reviews, I will record and release a special episode all about Disney's zombie duology. Duology? Is that right? Two films? Duology? I don't know. Even if you don't use Apple Podcasts as your podcasting platform of choice, I would suggest that you download it anyway. Download the app, create an account, and write a review anyway, because it does help the show. It's a free way to support the show, and I love reading brand new reviews. Of course, you can also stream the show via Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod, and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Who among you is going to write the short story about Skibbleshanks, the railway cat, taking a job on the 20th century? I'm waiting. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny for their amazing support, all of their hard work. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, oh, you know what that sound means, don't you? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night. Peter Rabbit!